Hi everyone, I'm Carly Vigna and this is episode 314 of At Percussion. With me today as usual are Ksenia Komjanovic. Hey Ksenia. Hey Carly. How are you doing down there in Texas? It's a bit cold, but not as cold as everywhere else, so we're okay. I think Caleb takes the cake, or actually Nick probably takes the cake on cold weather today. 25 currently. <laughs> Caleb Pickering is also here. Caleb, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Let's see. We are at, we're pretty warm today. We're um, at 36. That's Ooh. pretty good. We were at yeah. negative 14 last week. So that's so it rough. got warmer. <laughs> 36 sounds good today. Um, ben Charles is also here. Ben, is it cold? I was going to talk about history today, but I guess we're doing weather. Yeah, it's, it's uh, 52 degrees here. It was cold. It was cold yesterday. Well, I remember in South Florida, 52 degrees is like, that's kind of emergency cold. I think they put frost warnings. Yeah, bus up in North Face, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you're listening to this episode on a release date, that means it is February 3rd. So what happened in music history on February 3rd, Ben? Well, a few things, Carly. Uh, in 1809, Felix Mendelssohn was born. Uh, as we discussed in our group chat preparing for this in 2001, Shaggy's hit song, It Wasn't Me, was released based <laughs> on the uh, Eddie Murphy routine, if you ever get caught cheating. And this one's for Ksenia. <laughs> in 2013, B Beyonce reunited with Destiny's Child for a Super Bowl performance. Uh, but the big item I wanted to talk about today with three of us being University of Miami people is that in 1993, Gloria Estefan received her uh, star on the Walk of Fame. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll get some, some visuals there. So that's the uh, Gloria Estefan star on the Walk of Fame. And I think all of us have heard of the Walk of Fame, uh, but I decided to sort of do a little deep dive on it uh, as part of my report today. So uh, the Hollywood Walk of Fame is a historic landmark in Hollywood, California. Uh, it's a series of 2,710 currently terrazzo and brass stars spaced at six foot intervals embedded in the sidewalks of the 15 block long Hollywood Boulevard and three blocks of Vine Street in Hollywood, California. Uh, it's a public monument to uh, celebrate achievements in the entertainment in industry and it's administered by the Hollywood Chamber of Cong Commerce. Excuse me. Uh, it has an estimated 10 million annual visitors and it is the largest tourist attraction in LA and it comes in five categories so the five categories all have their own little emblem that gets put on the uh, the stars on the Walk of Fame so the first one is motion pictures which is represented by the classic film camera which is about 47 percent of the stars Broadcast TV, which is this television receiver, which is about 24% of the stars. Audio recording or music, which has a phonograph record as its emblem, that's 17% of the stars. Broadcast radio, which is a radio microphone, gets 10% of the stars, and these were added later. Theater and live performance has the comedy and tragedy mass, and that accounts for approximately 2% of the stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. There are approximately 20 stars added each year. This was proposed in 1953 by E.M. Stewart, who was the volunteer president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. There was a committee formed, and by 1955, the basic concept and design was submitted to the L.A. City Council. In 1959, the final design with the coral and charcoal color scheme was approved. Uh, in 1958, the honorees were selected. Uh, this was a process that went from the spring of 1956 to the fall of 1957. And I guess 1958 was when the first batch was announced, so to speak. One of the early requirements for recording artists was that they had to sell a million records or 250 albums. But this excluded many important recording artists, so it was later rescinded. And this also led to the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences being uh, formed. And that's the organization that puts on the Grammy Awards. The first Grammys were in 1959. The committee receives around 200 nominations each year, which I was actually surprised that sounds low. Nominees must have at least five years of experience in their field and a history of charitable con contributions. Posthumous nominees uh, must be at least five years deceased. The class of 2021 included Benedict Cumberbatch, Charlie Parker, Luciano Pavarotti, Don McLean, and Missy Elliott. And a few interesting stars I wanted to report on. Mickey Mouse was the first 
fictional character to get a star. Jay Leno requested a spot near the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Highland Avenue because he was picked up by the police for vagrancy twice at that location. Roger Moore and Daniel Craig stars are located located at 7007 Hollywood Boulevard in honor of their role as 007 James Bond. And last but not least, the Apollo 11 astronauts were honored with special stars. They are uh, considered, quote unquote, TV stars based on the, the icon on them. Uh, but their stars, instead of having a star, have a, a moon on them. So that's the uh, backstory on the Hollywood Walk of Fame that I had never really looked into before. That's pretty cool, actually. I didn't know that they had to have uh, like charitable contributions. Yeah, I didn't either. That's pretty cool. That's nice. Well, thanks, Ben. Yeah. Without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce our guest today, Nick Toll. Nick is an award-winning symbolum artist. Um, in 2019, he won third prize in the Budapest Music Center International Symbolum Competition, where he was the only finalist from North America. He has performed as a symbolum soloist at the Lucerne Festival with the Orchestra Symphonique de Montreal and many other professional orchestras. He is the artistic director of the Ludovico Ensemble, and he's played with the Boston Symphony Orchestra the Boston Symphony Chamber Players, the New York Philharmonic, Boston Modern Orchestra Project, International Contemporary Ensemble, and many, many others. Um, Nick also presented a really great virtual session for PASIC 2021 um, this past November on playing the Symbolum, and I enjoyed it a lot, and that's part of what inspired me to invite him on the show. So welcome, Nick. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I wonder if we'll we'll start um, talking about how you got started playing the, the symbolum. And I understand you did this a little later in your life than people who play the symbolum typically do. So how did it feel to be kind of a, a beginner at something like this as a young adult? Uh, so uh, your first question, uh, how I got started. So um, when I was an undergrad, uh, I became like pretty obsessed with the music of Georgi Kurtag. And uh, you know, I was doing my undergrad in percussion, and I, so I, you know, went straight to his like list of works to just see like what he had. I'm, you know, he's a living composer. You must have something for percussion, right? But virtually nothing. Uh, so I was very disappointed that I couldn't play any of his music. But there was this word that kept coming up in you know a dozen or so of his pieces, symbolon, which I I hadn't heard of. So I did some digging, found out what it was, and like asked around. Uh, if anyone knows about it or anything like that. And then uh, when I was a senior in college, I went to a new music concert where a group was playing a Kurtog piece and they announced from the stage that they had to get somebody to come in from Toronto, I think it was, to Boston because uh, that was the nearest cymbalum player at the time. So I always had the idea that uh, it would be great if I had the opportunity to, uh, to you know, figure out how to play it. Um, I ended up moving to Amsterdam for a couple of years after undergrad. And so that kind of went on the back burner. And then when I came back to Boston, I started really putting out feelers and uh, I just totally lucked in to uh, the symbolum that was for sale like three miles from where I lived in Boston. So it was just like dumb luck that I found an instrument. Uh, so then I, I took it home and you know, I started off, and like, you know, you can find a chart of like where the notes are online and things like that. So I, you know, opened up the first page of the Goldenberg book, which is, you know, just like whole note C major scales to try to like learn by rote where the, where the notes are, which is the main reason why no one plays that instrument because it makes uh, no sense. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I got thrown into, um, very demanding professional situations like well before I was ready to do them just because you know someone around needs a symbol and player and they'll uh, put up with your learning slowly how to do it if that means they don't have to fly someone in from another country so <laughs> uh, yeah it was it's it was daunting like you know playing you know difficult modern pieces on symbolum or at the same time if you had said hey can you play an a flat major scale top to bottom i'd be like no <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that that was the that's the the main thing about first of all learning an instrument at any point without like strong and consistent mentorship is inadvisable <laughs> uh and learning it as an, as an adult you know that was second to the uh 
the fact that there's nowhere to study the instrument seriously in this continent. Uh, so there was no rhyme or reason to like when I acquired a skill, like there was no, you know, pedagogical logic to it. So uh, in later years, you know, it's this, this was, you know, 15 years ago that I started learning it. So uh, I've subsequently tried to go back and like fill in those gaps, but it's ongoing. Um, so you said that you, it was sort of dumb luck that you found an instrument. Uh, may we know how much cost when you bought it? And if anyone wanted to get a symbolum now in the US, where would you advise them to go and how much money should they um, spend? So yeah, so I, so I currently own four symbolums, which is uh, a couple more than I need at least. Um, <clears throat> so the first one, um, it belongs to a, a musician named Myron Romano, who used to he was like a like a pianist with the Boston Pops, and he you know did all the cymbalum stuff when and it was around. But he's he's lived in Europe for decades, so his cymbalum was just sitting at his parents' house in Brookline, Massachusetts, in a crate for ten years. And I think they just wanted to get rid of it. In fact, my uh, the way I found it is that you know I my uh, percussion teacher from undergrad Pat Hollenbeck was in like the the dressing room at Symphony Hall and. Uh, one of the Romano brothers approached him and was like, and you know anyone that's looking for a symbolum? And a matter of fact, he did. So uh, that one, you know, I think they just wanted to get rid of it and it was, you know, a, cu a couple grand. So it was a great deal. Uh, the second one I just found out about from like uh, an estate sale. Again, they just wanted to get rid of it. So not much money there. Uh, I do have a, my, the symbolum that I travel with and play on usually is uh, I bought new and imported it from the Czech Republic. And all said and done, that was probably about 10 grand, like including the custom fee and like, you know, shipping it in a big crate and stuff like that. So um, you, it, it's, it's hard to say how much you, you should spend because these, the older instruments from you know early mid 20th century depending on what shape they're in you could someone would be well justified in in demanding a high price for it but you can sometimes get a good deal but if the instrument's in bad shape like there's i don't know where one would go to you know get a symbolum maintained so it's, it's risky understood yeah so it's so interesting um you know, we, we find sometimes people selling like old xylophones or vintage marimbas in estate sales, and they don't necessarily know what it is like somebody's grandmother played years ago. And, um, you know, they just want it to go to somebody that's going to use it. Yeah, anyone that's uh, studied with uh, my former timpani teacher, Sal Rabio has heard the story of him buying a set of Parsifal bells at a pawn shop for $25. So, you know, these things happen. <laughs> nice. You're lucky enough. Hey, forgive my ignorance on Symbolum, but I think I only know one other person that plays regularly, but he, I think, went from Hammer Dulcimer to Symbolum. Okay. And is that, is that kind of, is Hammer Dulcimer the gateway drug for, for uh, a player? You know, I, 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 I would understand maybe you, you, you heard about Symbolum because you play Hammer Dulcimer, but I don't think the, the skills transfer because I've, I've played a few pieces on Hammer Dulcimer, and my skills as a cymbal and player were not helpful. It's it's just a like it's a different technique that it's like a way different scale, and the notes are, you know, the note layout has nothing to do with cymbalum. So it's, I mean, you're hitting wires with sticks. That's about the only the only thing they. Would you say it's kind of like a jump from steel pan to vibraphone? Like it's sort of the same, but not really relevant. Also. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the note layout on steel pen has some logic to it, doesn't it? I'm not a steel pen yeah. myself. Yeah, so already you're at an advantage there. <laughs> does that mean you, like the, the layout on Symbolum does not really have any logic? Um, it, I haven't been able to decipher it if there is one. In 15 years. I mean, some some keys are definitely easier to play in, and maybe that's the those are the keys that the, the folk music tends to be in, but... I mean, it's much easier to play in D minor than it is to play in E, e flat major, you know. That's true for marimba also, I think yeah. is the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, if you haven't already, um, I, I highly recommend you check out Nick's website. You should be able to search it up pretty easily. And he has this um, section, what's it called? Composer's Guide yep. with all the information. And there you can kind of see the layout. To me, I've never laid eyes on a symbolum. And I would, would say something similar that, yeah, it seems like there's no real rhyme or reason there. Um, but it's, I'm surprised, actually. I've, I assumed there had to be some. So I'm surprised to hear you say that, Nick. They, uh, you know, I, th I, th I think the guys in the, like the ensemble intercontemporary like in the eighties were trying to figure out a way to like build a like chromatic symbol on, but it just, they never, never figured it out. So. That's so interesting. Well, you, you mentioned, um, you know, that the way that you learned was a little bit out of sequence and maybe not, um, logical in the way that now with all the pedag pedagogy we have around percussion, the way we learn, you know, concert snare drum or, yeah. or two mallet or four mallet playing. Do you teach symbolum now? I have never taught symbolum. Uh, and if somebody's interested in learning symbolum, I would highly recommend studying with like a real and proper symbolum. <laughs> someone who's been doing it since they were someone who someone whose primary instrument is symbolum for sure. And yeah, they're hard to find around here. Well, it, it just sounds like it's something that's hard to find everywhere. My my very first real, um, I think, ever conversation about Symbolum came um, about maybe nine months ago when I was just I, I was just starting my new job at Shenandoah Conservatory. And um, the saxophone professor said, hey, we're going to do this arrangement of Herianos. And I was like, okay, great. And he's like, yeah, do you have a symbolum? Like, can you play the symbolum part? And I was like, that is quite a specialty. You know, like that's a that's a totally different thing. Um, and I said, honestly, I don't know anyone. Like maybe there's somebody in DC, but I really don't know. And I kind of looked up and I, I saw your information and I saw, I think probably somebody in Canada. And I was like, no. <laughs> I've, uh, I've played symbolum at Shenandoah before. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like 2014 or something. They did a big Louis Andreessen festival. Oh, that's neat. I didn't know that. I did find out through all of this Ariano stuff that our um, former dean, I think maybe one or two deans before our current dean played, was a percussionist and also played cymbalum. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that, you know, there were, there were some people in the you know, from the 60s onward that that knew how to play the Hariano suite and any time an orchestra in the United States played it, there were like one or two guys that just, that's what they did. They played the Hariano suite on Symbolum, which is not an easy part to play, so. Yeah, I was gonna ask, so what, what we ended up doing, I, I was like, I, I definitely am not gonna be able to find and learn Symbolum in time for a November concert, but um, maybe it'll work to play it on marimba. And so that's what I did. Um, I figured, you know, we're already we're already doing an arrangement for sax ensemble, so let's arrange it further. And it, it, laid, it laid really well, actually, I wasn't oh, yeah. sure. Um, and, you know, I, I think it, I think ensemble wise and balance wise, it, it worked out fine. I hope that's not, um, like like a mortal sin to you? Absolutely not. Um, did you did you play both of the symbolum movements? Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the funniest. Okay. Well, a couple funny things about playing that piece with orchestra, which I've done, I don't know, twenty or thirty times, is I have never once heard the xylophone part. It's buried by the high winds and the glock. So all the time that we spend trying to perfect that xylo excerpt, it's for naught. Uh, and the other funny thing about that piece is that uh, the big symbol movement, the fifth movement, uh, starts with this, the string pickup is like a little tricky, like it's, it's by itself, but it's like off the beat. Yeah. So you have to be like very ready for it. However, uh, the string players have never heard the fourth movement because it's tacit for strings. So they have just no, no idea when it's about to start. <laughs> so after like any time after the first rehearsal, I'm just like, all right, look guys, if the sticks aren't in my hands yet, don't worry. If I'm if the sticks are in my hands, then it's time to time to get ready. Oh, that's good. Yeah, they have the little at the beginning of the, the movement, the da-da-da. Yep. And then and then you're in. Yeah, cool. Well, I wonder, um, Nick, would you tell us what are some of the strengths and limitations of the symbolum compared to other keyboard percussion instruments? It seems like there are probably some similarities as far as you know the striking and sustain and decay. But what have what have you found? Uh, I think, I mean, I kind of feel like wires are a little bit more versatile than bars generally. 
uh, in terms of just like the color possibilities on different areas of the string and the sustain of course is is huge and it's you know much much more powerful than the sustain of, of vibraphone for instance um i mean it, it it is strictly a two mallet instrument so that's one limitation it has compared to keyboard instruments and the note layout of the symbolism is of course vertical so four mallet keyboard technique is useless on it because you're you would just be playing you know a different part of the same string so uh yeah i think there's more yeah i think strings and wires just have a a, a more a, a wider palette of color than bars do generally but at the same time you know it's it's a basically a strictly a monophonic instrument most of the time well so we get so crazy sometimes with like tons of different mallets and different materials and different cores and all of that with you know say marimba or vibraphone mallets um you you did talk about the do, do we call them hammers either way yeah about the hammers or mallets that you use for symbol you talked about that in the basic class but do you tend to do you have like one set that you're going to use for most everything and then there's a lot of variety or would you have a lot of of mallets out when you're playing um it maybe it's it's more yeah, maybe it's more comparable to like timpani where like, you know, if you have three pairs of timpani mallets on your stand, like that's going to work for almost everything, right? So, I mean, you can get into the weeds and, you know, I have, you know, 50 pairs of Cymbala mallets, but um, for a given concert, I'm not going to have more than a few on a stand for sure. Well, Nick, uh, first of all, congratulations on uh, when Carly or when you said that you can find a, a guide to where the Cymbalome strings are. I just Googled Symbolum guide and I found your wonderful website that has this huge guide for composers. So everyone, please make sure you check that out. And there's actually weirdly sort of like a Symbolum scene in Dallas, or unfortunately I should say there was one because yeah, yeah. Ron Snyder who yeah, played in the Dallas symphony uh, was an amazing Symbolum player yeah. and he passed away uh, a couple of years ago. And then Christopher Dean was also an amazing Symbolum player. And if you uh, go on YouTube, you can find a recording of Christopher Dean playing the Ariano Suite with the UNT Orchestra, uh, and it, it has very good camera work. You can where you oh, can hey, actually yeah. see see I, him. I um, so check that out. But I wanted to ask a question. We're sort of talking about um, like you know Symbolone as a Symbolome as a career instrument, so to speak. And I know one thing that's unusual about a lot of we'll call them folkloric instruments is that usually people that play them don't read music. I know my teacher, William Mersch at the University of Illinois played hammer dulcimer. And he said that he was one of the few people that could read on hammer dulcimer. And so is like, is reading on symbolome a somewhat rare skill or do most symbolome players read uh while they play and is that is the ability to say sight read or read with very little notice uh, a coveted skill on symbolome yeah I, I think at this point you'd have to go like pretty deep into the folk scene to find people that aren't reading music on symbolome i mean this was definitely an issue in like stravinsky's day where he you know he just couldn't find anyone that could follow a conductor and and read the music he was writing and like you know the uh the original version of lenoche was supposed to have two symbol on parts, but he couldn't make it happen. So that was, that was begged. Um, but, and you know, it, yeah, um, at least for me, yeah, sight reading on it is, is still quite difficult compared to percussion instruments. But yeah, I, I think, yeah, pretty much everyone's reading on it now. Are there any other skills that you think are necessary for potential symbol players to invest in? Um, you know, I, I, I don't even think being being a percussionist is particularly helpful. Um, I mean, I use like a a very percussive technique on it, but I I don't like typical like actual cymbal players don't. And you know, the uh, the best cymbal players I know from Hungary like they're all just cymbal players, and uh, actually one of them is also a very good violist. Um, so. Uh, you, you can adapt percussion technique to symbolum like I have, and then you're, you know, being a percussionist does become helpful and it helps with, you know, dexterity and uh, agility, like kind of a good, a good snare drum technique foundation for sure. Gotcha. And then I had a, a sort of unusual question. I know we're about to 
talk some about contemporary music, but when I, I look at an instrument like a cymbalome, which I think is, I would consider a somewhat old school instrument, uh, and any instrument with strings like guitar, like my mind immediately goes to like put pickups on it, do like use a guitar pedal cymbalome. Uh, do you, have you ever seen anything like that out of the box or is that somewhere you think would be interesting for cymbalome players and composers to explore like electric cymbalome? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can, you can retrofit a, a cymbalum with pickups on it. And this is going to, you know, it'd be handy if you're, you know, if you're playing pop music or something on cymbalum, but I think just miking it was, is usually what people do. There's quite a lot of pieces for cymbalum and live electronics, uh, Pierre Boulez's Repon, uh, chiefly among them. Uh, I have, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, allergic to uh, wires in the uh, electronic music sense. I, I have very little patience for things going wrong on uh, with electronic uh, music setups and interactions. And it seems like we're always sitting around while people fuss with wires and uh, not my favorite thing in the world to do, but um, I'm definitely open to it. And uh, I think one thing along those lines that uh, people do get excited about is when I, uh, when I bring out Ebos, because those are very effective on Cymbalum. When you bring out what? Ebos, it's a, it's an electric guitar toy. So um, it, it works on piano and Cymbalum a little, it's like made for a guitar. So you have to kind of, you know, mess around with it to make it work on Cymbalum, but it activates the strings with a, an electromagnetic field, I think. I'm probably very wrong about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's accurate. But it, you know, it it just it just causes the string to vibrate without attacking it. So it's just a long it can a long sustain. Oh, cool. I'm I'm probably more allergic to electronics than you are. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll take you up on that. <laughs> yeah. So anyone that's that's not listening, it's e bow as in like yeah. a violin bow. Got e it. Okay. Violin e bow. Got it. Cool. Well, actually. Uh, Ben, I'm glad you mentioned this. I did not know that Christopher Dean um, played the cymbalum. That's neat. Christopher Dean did everything. Right? <laughs> Is there <laughs> anything amazing. he did not do? <laughs> I mean, just amazing tambourine player, amazing cymbalum player, amazing tempanist, just everything, yeah. <laughs> well, before we move away from cymbalum, Nick, um, you mentioned you, you feel like being a percussionist is not necessarily an advantage for um, playing the cymbalum, but there are, I, I think there's so many similarities, I think. Um, would you tell, there's a pedal, right? Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the pedal mechanism. It, like, does that compare to playing vibraphone or does it feel it's, really different? No, it's the same. I mean, it's, you know, felt dampers that are, you know, open and closed on the strings. So it's, it's. It's quite similar vibraphone piano. It's the same deal. And pushing it down makes the strings ring and releasing it makes them, uh, you know, muted. Luckily, it'd be so confusing if it was the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I think that I already know the answer, what you'll say to this question, but I wanted to ask you, do you think that symbolum should fall under the category of something that um, us contemporary percussionists should know how to play like hey bring your bring your timpani and your marimba and uh your cymbalum to the gig hard no on that one <laughs> it's just it, it's too it's too fuzzy it's it's too specialized and there's not enough need for it for it to like come into like you know that where you know a general percussionist would need to know anything about it they'll yeah i was gonna say i think if everyone played it no no one would ever get a gig because there's yeah, yeah there's, there's not, just not that that many opportunities yeah most most of the projects i have on it are my projects it's you know mostly that and occasionally i'm working for someone else but well it seems to have been a really nice niche for you to for you to find i mean you've yeah. done so much work on the symbolum and your the recordings you had in the basic the basic presentation were really wonderful. You play super well. So I'm glad that you found it. I wonder, would you tell us a little bit, would, do you have any um, particular like uh, Symbolum career highlights? What have been some of your favorite moments? Uh, I mean, playing uh, playing Rapon with Pierre Boulez conducting, that was, uh, you know, a life changer. And that was like 18 months after the first time I'd ever like touched a Symbolum. So that's what I mean. Oh throwing into the deep end like just immediately uh and that that was at the lucerne festival where i had like a long relationship with as a percussionist already 
So even though they knew I could barely play Symbolum at the time, they knew that if they gave me enough time that I'd probably pull it off okay. <laughs> uh, so that was huge. Um, John Harbison wrote, uh, John Harbison added a Symbolum part to his sixth symphony after he saw me do a Symbolum presentation at Tanglewood and that's what led to my first Symbolum gig with the BSO. So that was, uh, that was huge. Uh, and just, you know, meeting Kurtog for two minutes uh, when I was in Budapest, I'll always remember that. Whenever I hear about Boulez, all I can think of is, uh, I remember hearing like how amazing his ears were uh, and he could tell people, you know, just hear a chord and flutes, you're three cents sharp and trombones, that's 14 cents flat. I mean, just could go around the room like that. Um, and it, it brings me to actually a very stupid question about Symbolome, but is it like a violin where you tune it every time you play it or is it like a piano or is it like when it like what's the how do you tune it and how often uh def definitely i mean I, i'll put up with a surprising amount of uh bad intonation when i'm practicing at home to avoid tuning it because it is you know there's 133 strings on it and it's uh torturous torturous do, is it at least like i know on violin like if you tighten one string a lot it can adjust the other strings does adjusting one string affect the others or is it just like a string by string thing not that i've noticed but i i'm really that's good I, at least <laughs> but you know the a lot of the strings on symbolism are bridge divided so on one side of the bridge for instance you'll have a g and on the other side you have a c and the same tuning pegs are tuning both of those notes and you can tune the G to where it's in tune, and then you can go over and tune the C, and somehow it doesn't affect the G. I mean, it, unless you're really going at it, but like you can make small adjustments without, without it affecting one side of the bridge or the other. I'm not really quite sure why that's the case, but yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, you've gotten some, you've just shared some really wonderful high profile gigs, and I'm wondering, um, you know, whenever, I speak to any concert presenters about potential events and then, you know, we mention having something as simple as a marimba on stage. They're like, Whoa, that's a wild card. I mean, and that takes time to set up and, you know, people, I'm not sure that the audience is going to understand. How do you manage to sell the symbolum then? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not, I mean, to, to, the, to, to the degree that I have. Um, you know, it is like it's uh, audiences flock to that instrument when they see it, especially around the United States where it's so rare, like, you know, it's like every time after the concert's over, the symbolum is surrounded by audience members just trying to get a closer look. And I have I have pictures of this. So that's that's a helpful selling point. Um, Thank yeah, you. you know, I'll use that. I'll use that in the future. And you know it is it is such a novelty, and you know, the novel can be attractive, so that's also helpful. Yeah, thanks. So I'm feeling like um, like non-percussionists when they see the marimba, like my five octave, and then I say, yeah, and I can break it down and put it in my Prius, and they're like, what? They just have no idea of how we move the instrument. How do you move a cymbal? I'm like, do you, do you break it down? Uh, Are there cases? It is the uh, it's the only instrument I own that I cannot move by myself. Um, yeah, so the, the legs and the pedal come off, but then you still have the, the entire body of the instrument. That's just one big piece. And it weighs, I don't know, 150 pounds. And it's, it's not the weight that it's the problem is that it's just so big and awkward. So, uh, it's, it's doable, but it's, it's no fun. That's a little bit how I feel about marimpas these days too. I mean, I have, a, I have a five octave too, and I can... Yeah, I can break it down myself if I have to. It's not fun either, but if in a pinch, I don't need to like get a neighbor over here or something. Right, right. It's so fascinating. I have one more, Nick, before we move on. Do, do you get any, uh, do you get any like, like audience questions repeatedly that um, are either charming or annoying or both? Um, well, I do a lot of presentations to composers and uh, can you play with four mallets on the symbolum is, guaranteed to be asked um and the answer is no <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of uh, like no, formality no, chimes or something yeah no no with an asterisk i mean like it just kind of i mean depends on how bad you want it i guess 
Probably I let's leave it at no. I haven't expected on your on your guide to go down to the spot that said four mallets and just see a big like 64 point font just no. I think that's what my going. that's what my keynote presentation is. But uh you know there there are pieces that require multiple mallets and uh it's an incredibly fragile technique on symbolum and uh I'm not entirely convinced that it's ever been successful. Well, and then you have to you have to wonder like is it musically worth the effort and what you give up in control? Yeah, I mean it's almost a I mean it's a little bit like six mallets on marimba. I mean like yeah I, I guess but <laughs> but at what cost? But why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, moving on, Nick. I see in your bio that um, a while back, back in 2011, you were selected to perform a recital as part of the Lucerne Festival Academy Spotlight Series, and it says that you presented a program that is titled "To Hit." That was a full program of percussion music with no instruments. And so I read about this, and I just have to know, what did you play? <laughs> uh, you could, I mean, you know, a lot of uh, standard pieces that one might assume. So. It started out with, uh, well, I should also say that this this was a program uh, shared with my old friend and colleague, Ross Carr. So he, it was like he had his program and I had mine and the concert kind of alternated between the two of us. Uh, so I started out with the Lakaman piece Guero, which is for scraped piano keys. So you just, there's, you don't play piano at all, but it is a piano solo. So you just like, scrape along the edge of the keys with your fingernail and like glide your fingers along the keys without activating the strings so it, it sounds a bit like a guiro. Um, then I played the uh, the Chelsea piece Kota for guitar treated as a percussion instrument, as he says. Uh, the only thing you need for that piece is a guitar. You don't need any sticks or do you need sticks? I don't think so. It's been a while. Uh, and that was like the first half of it. And then uh, I tested everyone's patience with the second half because I played um, their Zhevsky piece, Lost and Found. I don't know if anyone knows that one. It's just like first spoken word. It's, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a percussion solo because percussionists do it, but I mean, and you don't even have to be a musician to play that piece. Like an actor could do a perfectly fine job at it. Um, so that's just for spoken word and uh, you say like three words at a time and then do some kind of action, usually like hitting yourself in some way or another. Then I went uh, without pause, went straight from that to um, Corporel, the Globacar piece. And then straight from that into this kind of non-traditional piano piece that a friend of mine from undergrad named Rudolf Royan wrote called Junkie. And that's basically a semi-improvisational piano piece that's based on a Basquiat painting that involves an awful lot of screaming. Um, there's, a, there's a YouTube video that's just called Nick Toll with a Piano, and whoever posted it didn't know what I was doing, so that's just the title of it, Nick Toll with a Piano. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's that piece, Junkie. <laughs> We'll have to check that out. Thanks. I, I recommend checking it out. It's quite something. Nick we'll have to edit the piano. that in to be specific. Oh, please, please do. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I support this. Thanks. The, the only piece in that program that I thought was probably definitely on the program was Corporal. So yeah. I'll have to check out some of those other works. That's, that's uh, cool. The, the Jeffsky piece is, uh, it is guaranteed to make the audience incredibly uncomfortable more uncomfortable than Corporal would make them. Glad you, you mentioned the Skelsey. I feel like that's the best composer that no one's ever heard of, um, for me at least. Yeah, he uh, he's kind of obscure by design. He uh, even, you know, he, he didn't really seek the limelight that much when he was alive either. Yeah, yeah, everything for me, I feel like everything he writes is just really like special. Like it's so interesting and He's just one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, yeah. And his, his percussion quartet is also amazing. Things that we'll have to go, go and check out. 
Um, well, Nick, you, you studied percussion at Boston Conservatory and at New England Conservatory, and I read in your bio you attended orchestral festivals like Aspen and Tanglewood, um, and then it seems like your your path took you towards more towards contemporary music and symbolism and all these different things that maybe you didn't imagine um, when you were learning, you know, timpani excerpts and all that. Um, <laughs> what, what, what were some of the pivotal points in your path as a musician? How, how did you get to where you are now? Oh, I also went to the Amsterdam Conservatory. I don't want to oh. don't, don't want to leave them out of the the conversation. That was an important couple of years. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I I started going to college in two thousand one, so I was auditioning, you know, at the at the beginning of two thousand one, and I think the the change of the like the level of incoming undergrads in the last 20 years is like ba basically unrecognizable. So like somebody at my skill set in 2001 would not get into school today. I don't I don't think. So I like I you know it was the kind of thing where I was like you know pretty good in my high school concert band and like played in the St. Louis Youth Orchestra. But I didn't have really like any like, I, I just, I didn't know anything. Like, I, you know, I went to, I don't know how I ended up at the Boston Conservatory, to be honest. Like, they were part of, like, a unified application, and I was just like, no, oh, all right, why not? Like, I, uh, I mean, I had heard of Nancy Zeltzman. I had not heard of the other teachers there. I had no idea who was teaching at the New England Conservatory or how those schools were different. Uh, so I was just kind of a blank slate when I showed up. Um, and the cool thing about Boston Conservatory, which is now has since been swallowed by Berkeley, and now it's it's one thing. But at the time, uh, you could cross enroll because there were there was an affiliation of like small colleges that you could just take whatever class you wanted at any of them. So I ended up just taking you know any class I could fit in, like some you know low demand kind of like lab class at Berkeley. Uh, so. I took a class called uh, jazz drum styles. I, I don't know. You just go in every week and the teacher would like talk about a diff different jazz drummer. And one week he talked about uh, Joey Barron. And then he was like, all right, so here's this project that's uh, it's Joey Barron and he's uh, it's playing playing music by uh, John Zorn and uh, Mike Patton is on vocals. And I was just ride or die, like from when from when I was five years old, like lifelong Faith No More fan. I and Mr. Bungle, I love Mike Patton, and I was like, "Huh, I didn't know Mike Patton was involved with these these other avant-garde musicians." So this is probably something worth checking out. So then I go to uh, Newberry Comics down the road to the, you know, he said it was a John Zorn thing, so I looked up John Zorn, and I was like, "Huh, John Zorn has an album of string quartets." Wasn't expecting that, so. Because, you know, I didn't know anything. I was think, thinking string quartets, it's like Haydn. So I bought the John Zorn album of string quartets and went home and listened to it. And I think that's what sealed my fate as a uh, contemporary music devotee. It's just all from being a, you know, metalhead as a kid, basically. <laughs> that's the best story I've ever heard about one <laughs> I mean, you know, you I mean, it's, you know, a lot of this music can be you know, quite alienating to people. So it's all about finding the the avenue of access to it. And for me, it was the rock music I liked as a kid and it being really, and you know, and it being related to uh, to this other like huge wide world of, uh, of other music. That's such a great story. And I think um, it's one of the advantages. I honestly, I don't know what it's like now at Boston Conservatory. Um, Boston Conservatory at Berkeley, I think as it's branded now, but probably it was the same when I was there as when you were there that there were these like lab rooms with, I don't know, like 10 or 15 drum sets in a room and yeah. I mean, they're, they're incredibly well equipped and people, you know, classical majors could take whatever class you could take different world drumming classes and it was just, I think, eye opening. Yeah, I, I took 30 or 40 classes like I, I can't remember a single thing about, you know, uh, you know, the class I took about like playing with the brushes or something, but <laughs> why not? I think I got like a C minus in that one. <laughs> oh no. I just had a, a quick little thing to interject. Uh, Nick mentioned the piece by Frederick Zhevsky, which is I think one of my favorite composers just to hear about. 
Uh, and if you're not familiar, his name looks like Razuski. It's R-Z-E-W-S-K-I. And he had some really interesting ideas on how to share music. I won't bore you with the details of that, but basically all of his music is online for PDFs uh, as PDFs for free. So I looked up the score for Lost and Found yeah. and uh, I was like, how I, on I... earth could a, how could a piece make someone any more uncomfortable than Corporel? And when I looked at the score, I will, I will show it on here if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, the very first instruction is the performer should be naked or nearly so. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, I, I did not three, do that for the record yeah. and no one who plays that piece does. <laughs> number three, the throwing of the table and chair should be sudden, unexpected, violent actions. That I did do. Uh, and uh, pause equals six to 10 seconds of nothing. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, gotta, I gotta look more at this because this is just, this is Frederick Jewski at his best. I have just um, so, given yeah. class on ambushes. <laughs> he has a, also, we talked about uh, Frederick Jeski with Alan Adi, um, and he has a piece called, oh, is it The People United Will Never Be Divided, I think is the name it's of it. It's an hour-long piano piece, yeah. and it's just jaw-dropping. So anyway, go check out some Frederick Jeski. Wait, how long is this piece? Uh, Lost and Found is takes about, I don't know, 12, 15 minutes, and it, it is most it depends on how naked you are. Uh, <laughs> It would it would take me it would take me less than thirty seconds to just say the entire text of the piece, but it takes fifteen minutes to say it in performance. So wow, cool. Uh, and there's a couple like, and I'm I'm terrible at like keeping a straight face if something's kind of funny. And there's a couple parts in that piece that are a little bit amusing that I really struggled to like. Yeah. But you say thirty seconds of speaking and fifteen minutes of concert time that's a great idea for like last minute recital you're missing a quarter of it no that's i i mean lost and found is still you know it's d difficult to learn and memorize so i mean if you're looking to fill the space then you just do the the james tenney gong thing right yeah out. <laughs> um, more than a couple people at nec did i think <laughs> Well, Nick, what is your what is your typical performing schedule look like? I know we're like um, almost two years into the weirdest time ever, but maybe before COVID, or what does it look like now? Uh, I mean, right now everything's everything this month was canceled, so I'm uh, enjoying my you know one month reprieve before things get crazy again. Hopefully, hopefully get crazy again. Uh, yeah, but before you know as you know, just in the freelance scene in Boston, it kind of alternated between like four gigs happening at the same time and then just, you know, a couple of weeks that were relatively less involved. It's, you know, if if all the gigs that you do were just like evenly spread out for the year, it would kind of look like a regular job, but they're just like, you have a week of like three different three hour rehearsals every day and then two weeks where you have almost nothing but uh one thing I do that we we haven't touched on is that I kind of run the the rental the instrument rental scene in Boston so um you know when performances are like like that's that's still quite active and that that kept me fairly fairly busy it's not not glamorous or anything but it uh suits my my personality and skill set pretty well I think well, and I, I imagine it's a, you know, really good business to be in. What's what's your involvement like in that? Uh, well, it's just called Boston Percussion Rentals. It's just me. Uh, and, you know, the way that happened is just or, organically, you know, there's, I don't know, five or six companies in New York that are doing this. And in, in all of New England, there was none. Wow. So, so whenever whenever somebody needed something, it would just be like a group email to like all of the freelancers, like trying to piece together the instruments that they needed, like who had it, what was available, like. So I just kind of made a website and uh, kind of purposely bought some instruments for the purposes of renting them out, but mostly it was just the stuff I already had and it just kind of grew from there. So when you rent things out, um, do people come and pick it up or you bring it to the venue or Depends. It depends on if I'm free enough to do it or if it's a small, uh, a small enough amount of gear that I can move myself. But there's another company in Boston and all they do is move instruments. 
Cartage America. Uh, so if it's, you know, full set of timpani and tubular bells and like a marimba and a vibraphone, like I'm not doing that. So that's when they, they come and get it. And yeah, it's great. I just have to be home. That's great. I think um, when I was living in South Florida, if there were a company called Cartage America, I would have used them a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad those guys are around. Yeah, that's great. Well, and another another different hat that you wear, Nick, is that you're the artistic director of the Ludovico Ensemble, um, which you started in 2002, I read, at the age of 19. So I'm wondering, because it's been um, 20 years now, what, what do you know now about running an ensemble that you wish you knew then? What did you learn along the way? Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it was and is, it remains by design like a pretty small operation uh, Boston's best kept secret, as I like to call it. Um, but, uh, yeah, my, you know, my tendency in all my projects is just, just to try to kind of handle everything myself. And I definitely wish I had figured out that, like, rather than trying to wear all the hats, just to, to find people that, you know, complement my, my weak areas to help run it. But at, you know, when starting it out, I was so hesitant to, like, give up any decision-making in the group that uh, took me longer than than it should have to uh, to kind of like build a you know more supportive operation, uh, and then the other thing just in starting you know because everyone's just starting projects all the time now, and I, uh, I I think it should be kind of you know it's it's okay to have modest ambitions with the projects like. Ludovico Ensemble has been around for 20 years. We do like three or four concerts a year in Boston and I have no interest in, in having it be any more than that. Like that's, you know, I get to program a few concerts a year of music that is important to me and that I really want to hear. And I get to do it with like the friends and colleagues that I've had for, you know, 20 years here. And that's, that's all it needs to be. And that's all I want it to be. And I, you know, I don't, uh, don't have designs for it beyond that. Did you have ambitions beyond that earlier? Like when you were starting, were you thinking, oh, we're gonna tour and, you know, record a bunch of albums? Um, I mean, we have recorded a few albums, but um, no, touring's never something I looked into. And, you know, the, the reason for that group's existence is because uh, at the Boston Conservatory, when I was an undergrad, there was no new music ensemble. Like the Boston Conservatory had no new music ensemble. You could go to school there for four years and never play a piece by a living composer. Like. Wow. It was, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, you know, the idea of like, if you had told me like the Boston Conservatory would soon in the future have like a contemporary music major, I mean, that would have been uh, hard to believe given the, um, the focus of the school when I was there. So that the, I mean, it was just born out of necessity, like, I wanted to play this music, and the school wasn't going to program it. So that's why the ensemble exists in the first place. Well, it sounds like you might have been part of an instrument, like instrumental part of the culture shift there, because I was there 2009 to 2011, and it was just so ingrained that there were a ton of student composers and the entire, pretty much all of the percussionists just loved working with them. And it was like, it felt like new music all the time. And then, yeah, I, I can't remember when they started the contemporary music degree, but I think it was a few years after yeah, I left yeah, and it yeah. just made sense. Like that's what people yeah. would go there to do. Yeah, that was definitely not the case uh, in the turn of the century. The turn of the century. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, and, and you said too that Ludovico is a, a well-kept secret in Boston. I didn't feel that way when I was there either. I felt like, I mean, at least in our corner of you know um, contemporary percussion. Well, we were we were ensemble in residence at Boston Conservatory at the time, so. Right. I felt like every. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's a a, a small slice of the the music world in Boston, but I mean, it, it was the like talk of the town. <laughs> oh, thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I wonder, do you have any advice on freelancing? We talk about freelancing a lot and we've talked about it on the show a lot, um, aside from like the, the good old standards, cause you've had such successes freelancing and you know, in your entrepreneurial endeavors, um, what, what advice beyond like always be prepared and do a good job and, and that sort of thing. 
Uh, I would say in your, you know, if if you're setting out to be a freelancer in your studies, <clears throat> it would uh, it would be helpful to not specialize to like to the to the degree that you can. So, um, you know, my my freelancing career just like it started out of dumb luck, but um, <clears throat> the kind of versatility of teachers I had over the years and just the you know, the fact that I didn't say, go get a contemporary music degree or a, you know, a more specialized degree was uh, pretty helpful. But yeah, that's, that's if you're, if you're going for a career as a general freelancer, but I'm not sure how many people are doing that these days or, or, or how wise it would be to do that for that matter. Well, it sounds like you took advantage of a lot of, a lot of different um, opportunities you had as a student, like just learn as much as possible in different styles and that sort of thing too. So I wonder, one of, one of the things when I was freelancing a lot in South Florida, um, I found it very difficult to say no to things. And there's this kind of scance, scarcity mindset sometimes in, in the freelance lifestyle of you think like, if I don't take this gig, even if it, it's like too much work right now, I don't have time for it, it doesn't pay enough, like maybe at this time next year, they're not going to call me and I might really need it next year. You know, there's like, it's it's hard to juggle sometimes. Um, and the, the more that I, the longer that I was freelancing, the easier these decisions became. Um, but it's still, you have this this kind of feeling of like, oh, I don't know. Um, how, how has your freelance career developed over time? Um it, it remains painful to say no to things. And I've had some, you know, incredibly painful no's just for, for things I would ask to do too late and I was already booked. I mean, like, that's the cardinal rule is like, you 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 can't leave a gig if a better gig comes along. Like, that's just career suicide instantly. Um, so it, it never gets any easier to say no to something. I mean, you know, something you want to do at least. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't have any answers for that. It never gets easier for me. Well, there it is. And I, I, you know, I'll, I'll move, try to move heaven and earth to just be like, is there any way, you know, we can, you know, make this work somehow? I really want to do it. And especially after the last couple of years. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> we all want to play. Well, Nick, what's, what's coming up next for you? What's on your plate these next couple of months? Uh, I commissioned a lot of symbol and pieces uh, over this, you know, the last couple of years of no performances so that I would have fun things to do when concerts happen again. So uh, I'll be in the, you know, in the far future in the summer, I'll be in the Midwest premiering uh, new symbol and pieces by Anthony Green, by Bahar Rayai, and by Gabrielle Cerverville. Uh That's super exciting. Uh, there's a new George Benjamin opera that's being done at uh, Tanglewood that uh, has a big symbol in part from my understanding. Uh, in the immediate future, it's just uh, hopefully like the things that are booked in February and March happen. And that's just, uh, you know, my main main gig in Boston is Boston Modern Orchestra Project. So we have some, some projects coming up and uh, outside of work, I'm going to uh, Denmark in May to see a metal festival, which I'm very excited about. Awesome. Nice. Good job. <laughs> Hopefully that happens too. Yeah. Crossing fingers that it, it seems like we should be out of the woods by then, but it's so hard to make plans. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, uh, Ludovico Ensemble just recorded uh, a CD of music by a composer called Anna Pigdorna. Uh, very, very excited about uh, this album. It's going to be, uh, it's, just insanely good music. And uh, I hope a lot of people hear that when it comes out. Uh, no idea when it's coming out, but and it does. You anticipated my question. <laughs> when can we expect that? I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll look it, out for it. Uh, unlike previous Ludovico Ensemble recordings, like I'm, I'm not self-releasing this one. It's so it's out of my hands now. So hopefully soon. Awesome. Uh, that music is definitely worth hearing. This is only tangentially related, but I'm just glad that <laughs> Nick's also a, a metal fan. 
Okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. Um, yeah, yeah. Metal music's good. We wish we had Casey on for that one, so we could just go on a huge metal tangent. But um, hey, did anybody did anybody follow this whole when we were young festival music festival yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff? <laughs> yeah uh, no what's that i saw the announcement and then all the memes the all the memes from it yeah it's basically <laughs> anyone that was in high school from i don't know 2000 to 2008 ish or something like that um there was a teenager in the early 2000s there's a big las vegas music festival where they basically took all the big emo and hardcore bands from that time period and they just have them on a one-day thing like who um story of the year paramore um seosin census fell <laughs> um all the all the classics trey you red jumpsuit apparatus um there's a bunch there's like 30 bands it's yeah it seems I, pretty fun i saw them i saw the metal version of it and i'm just like that was just ozfest 97 yeah <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I saw it, and I think everyone about my age or our age also that was a fan of that music got really hyped. Um, well, I just saw today that uh, there's there's rumors about that Sunny Day Real Estate is going to tour again. So that's that's the best news I got today. That'd be fun. <laughs> I'm very excited about this possibility. <laughs> very nice. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been great to hear more about Symbolum and your playing um, and look forward to hearing what, what you have going on next. Great, thanks so much. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you.